This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Naomi Klein on the Green New Deal. She's an award-winning journalist, a syndicated columnist, and of course, author of the bestsellers, No Is Not Enough, This Changes Everything, The Shock Doctrine, and No Logo, books that change the lives of a lot of us. She's a member of the board of directors for the International Climate Action Group 350.org. She's also senior correspondent for The Intercept. She's a writing fellow for the Type Media Center. We used to call it the Nation Institute. And she's a contributor to The Nation magazine. Her recent articles have appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Guardian, and The London Review of Books. Naomi Klein, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Well, how would you describe the Green New Deal resolution that was announced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey? Well, it is a a sweeping plan to radically transform how we get energy, move ourselves around, live in cities, grow our food, and it puts justice at the center, justice broadly defined as everything from racial justice to making sure no worker is left behind, battling inequality, battling poverty. So it's really about multitasking. It's about understanding that we are in a time of multiple overlapping crises, but we are also on an incredibly tight deadline when it comes to lowering greenhouse gas emissions in time to prevent truly catastrophic warming. And that means that if we're going to get emissions down as quickly as we do in order to bring people along with these changes, there have to be benefits in the here and now in terms of the kinds of jobs that are provided uh, and the justice that comes through. You say the Green New Deal is not a question that will be settled through elections alone. What do you mean? Well, in terms of winning the power to introduce a package as ambitious as as is being outlined in the resolution, the only real historical precedent is the original New Deal. And the political dynamics that produced the original New Deal were not a benevolent politician handing it down from up on high from the goodness of his heart. Absolutely, it mattered to have FDR instead of Hoover in power, who was open to these kinds of transformations, but it mattered even more to have an incredibly organized uh, population, which was flexing its muscles uh, in every conceivable way from, in the 1930s, from you know sit-down strikes in, in auto plants to shutting down the ports on the West Coast to shutting down entire cities with general strikes and having you know more radical political voices who were calling for policies more radical than the New Deal, uh, like a truly cooperative economy. So all of that created the context in which FDR was able to sell the New Deal to elites, certainly begrudgingly received by them, but as a compromise because the alternative seemed to be political revolution. So the only way that something like this happens is if there it is accompanied by a huge grassroots mobilization where you know every workplace, every sector, um, every movement is asking, what would a New Deal mean for us? What would it mean for our sector? What would it mean in our workplace? What would it mean for the groups that we represent and really making it their own? And I think one of the really great things about the resolution is that 
it's a lot more decentralized in terms of how it's proposing to roll out than the original New Deal. It is all about community empowerment and decentralization and calls for uh, this kind of organizing. So, you know, I don't think it's only movements and I don't think it's only politicians. I think it is only both that will make this possible. So uh, it's going to take a hell of a lot of grassroots organizing, uh, mobilizing all of these sectors to really believe that the New Deal is going to make their lives better, and that being coupled with politicians running at every level of government, including for president, with a promise to enact this on day one. Let me underline what you said, that building political power is about changing the calculus of what is possible. That's really a big obstacle. We saw that in a column by Gail Collins in the New York Times last week. She argued the Green New Deal is way too far-reaching and that we should focus our efforts on uh, more manageable things like building more electric generating capacity from solar and wind. It's not exactly opposing the Green New Deal, but it's certainly not helping. Right. I mean, there is this idea that a more kind of uh, incrementalist or just climate-focused policy that doesn't talk about fighting inequality, that doesn't talk about a huge jobs program, that doesn't talk about health care for all, would make it more sellable. But what's amazing to me is that what's actually stood in the way of strong climate policy in the past has been that, you know, in times of uh, real economic stress, like the ones we've been living in, people consistently rank climate, even people who care about climate change or even people who vote Democrat, if you ask them to rank the issues that they care about, climate change will always rank below health care, below jobs. Um, you know, often it ranks last on the list of political priorities. And that's why politicians always feel that it's um, sacrificeable. I mean, Obama did that, right? He, he looked at the polls and he prioritized health care. And, you know, when that led to a huge amount of of pushback, he really didn't spend any political capital trying to get the totally inadequate cap-and-trade policy through. So this idea that somehow climate change policy is more practical, more pragmatic if it's delinked from economic and social justice is actually not true. Linking it to, these are more popular policies actually. And then the other reason, the other thing that stands in the way when politicians actually do introduce climate policies is often that if they don't prioritize justice, they're actively unjust. And if we want an example of what that looks like, we can look to Emmanuel Macron in France, where Macron, this very neoliberal president, introduces a tax cut for the very, very rich at the same time as he introduces a carbon pricing scheme that increases the cost of life for working people. And lo and behold, then you have an uprising and indeed rioting in the streets with the Gilets Jaunes movement, the Yellow Vest movement, precisely because there is this split where, you know, as, as one of the protesters put it, a split between the politicians who care about the end of the world when we have to care about the end of the month, right? Yeah. So I think the brilliance, really, of a Green New Deal framework is that it doesn't ask people to choose. It says, 
we have a plan for you to express the fact that actually we all care about the end of the world. We, I mean, we, we all care about uh, the life support systems that we all depend on, but we by necessity also care about the end of the month. So how do we design policies that, that simultaneously lower emissions and lower that economic strain? And that's exactly what they're trying to do. Let's talk for just a minute about the opposition to a Green New Deal. Of course, there's the climate change deniers like the president and the whole Republican Party. I was a little surprised to learn from your your piece in The Intercept about the Laborers International Union. I didn't know about them. So there's been a sector of the trade union movement with Leuna, as you mentioned, who represent construction workers, but also some of the other unions representing the building trades, who have been very pro-Trump and have been dividing the labor movement really consistently over these pipeline fights. They came out very strongly against the unions that had supported the movement against the Keystone XL pipeline. They were irate that parts of the labor movement, like National Nurses United, like the transit workers unions, like SEIU, parts of SEIU, had come out strongly against the pipeline. And they really presented this as a breach of the principle of solidarity, because these are jobs that their workers would have, their members would have benefited from. Then it got even uglier in the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline and Standing Rock, where even after the most you know, extraordinary, brutal repression and the attack dogs and the tanks and you know, so many protesters being injured, Leona came out uh, attacking the demonstrators and attacking the unions that were standing with them. And then on Trump's first day on the job, the Monday after inauguration, they dutifully went in for a photo op, a guided tour of the White House, uh, announced that Trump's inauguration speech was a great victory for working men and women. And it was, you know, specifically because a couple of his first acts were to, you know, sign executive orders um, pushing through the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone Pipeline. So this is a real split. And so far, they have been, you know, this relatively small block within the labor movement has been really on the attack. And what I argue in my piece is that it's time for the rest of the labor movement to fight back, to take them on. Um, It's time for their own members to fight back. And I think vote out these bosses who are not representing them and are in fact standing with industry and are not standing with workers because the Green New Deal, you know, they've come out attacking the Green New Deal, which has some of the best uh, provisions for specifically union protection, a federal jobs guarantee that would ensure that any worker who lost their job in one of these trades as we decarbonize is able to get a job at the same salary and benefits level, which has been something that's really been missing from the discussion of green jobs up till now, is that we don't just need any old jobs. We need jobs that are as good as the jobs that are being lost in the fossil fuel sector. Um, And so this is really taking that head on. And so if Leona is still attacking it anyway, then really they, they should be treated as an arm of the oil and gas industry, which is what they have become. One of the unions that you really like is the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. They've made a wonderful proposal. Tell us about that. I think you and I have talked about before that I've been involved in a a project in Canada called the LEAP Manifesto, which is our 
people's version of a Green New Deal that came out of a gathering of social movement leaders and trade union leaders that came up with a plan to, to, to do exactly what, what, what is being attempted with the Green New Deal to get off fossil fuels in a huge hurry, but to put justice at the center and labor protections at the center. And after the LEAP manifesto came out, our team worked with that union at their request to come up with a plan to apply the principles of the LEAP manifesto to the post office, which at that time was facing a very real prospect of being privatized and, 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 and radically downsized. And so rather than just saying, well, we want to keep things as they are, despite the fact that how we tend to send mail has been you know, radically changed by Amazon and by courier services, um, they said, we want, we want to change this service that has been at the center of communities for so long. And we want to now be at the center of a transition uh, off of fossil fuels. So we want to have postal banking. We want to have solar panels on the rooftops of every post office. We want a charging station outside. We want a fleet of vehicles that are all electric and all made domestically. And we want to not just be delivering the mail, but be delivering uh, locally grown produce, checking in on the elderly, being part of the caring economy. It's really a radical plan that's being championed by you know, a, a really unabashedly progressive union. And that's the kind of thing that coming to what we, where we started, that's what it means to make the Green Deal your own, right? That's what we need to be happening from teachers' unions, nursing unions, we need every, every organized workplace to be getting together and imagining what their workplace would look like if they took rapid decarbonization seriously and you know, how could it improve lives, how could it lead to a fair economy. And you know, we see right away that it certainly is in conflict with the logic of austerity that so many of these workplaces you know, have been facing. Naomi Klein wrote about the Green New Deal for The Intercept. Naomi, thanks so much. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, John. Take care. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>